listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Uh, well, I, um, I need to clear something up uh, with you guys because I feel like I get a really um, unfair rap on our church staff when it comes to sports. I'm kind of known on our team as like the anti-sports, don't know anything about sports guy. And uh, honestly, it's really hurtful to me. I'm praying through it uh, as we speak. It's, it's, it's because I don't know stuff like, oh, the, the NBL is having their thing uh, last night, right? I, just because I don't know things like the draft, okay? So don't judge me. But, but I want to establish to, to my people right here, the church, that I actually, uh, I'm pretty savvy. I played seven years of baseball growing up. So, you know, do with that what you want, people. Uh, in fact, my whole team and all my coaches had a nickname for me. They called me the Great Bambino. Now, I don't want to brag, but that's uh, kind of a big deal in baseball speak. Uh, Great Bambino, and uh, we were really actually a good team. Like, we won championship series. Like, we did that thing. Our players were really great. We were kind of revered in Little League world. And then a crucial moment comes. Uh, It's like that junior high, high school time. And uh, our team, one by one, was was trying out for, like, the junior pro league. So it was kind of like the next step up before you get into, like, high school baseball and each one of us tried out, and uh, one by one, I'm watching my teammates uh, make, it, make it on the team, get to go to the, to the pros, and uh, then it's my turn, and I, uh, I try out, and I didn't make it, and I'm stuck back in the minors. Pathetic, and I'm laying in my bed that night, and my brain is just swirling, just trying to make sense of how this would be possible, and as I ponder, like, what has happened this like haunting thought begins to dawn on me. Like, um, you know, I, I've never hit a home run. Like they, they call me the great Bambino, but I've never, I've never even done the one thing that like he's known for doing. In fact, I can't even like stay in the box because I'm scared of the pitch. So I, I step back most of the time when I'm batting. And I was the pitcher on the team. But as I'm thinking about it, I was actually like the worst. Like I would hit people with the ball all the time. And then it occurred to me, oh no, uh, I think the only thing I have in common with Babe Ruth is my waistline. I was a little rotund at the time. And then it occurs to me, had they just been calling me the great Bambino because I'm chunky and, and have a baby face? You don't know what that does to a 14-year-old psyche, okay? Let me tell you what it does. I, I joined the theater team. That's what it does to a human being. I just switched gears. I was a fraud this whole time, and I didn't even know it. See, I had the title of heavy hitter. That's, that's what I was known as, but my life lacked the authenticating marks to confirm it. My performance exposed me as a fraud. And 
if you want to trace one of the, the themes that, that kind of runs through the course of the book of James, it would be something like this. James is constantly helping expose the fraud inside of us. He's doing that over and over again. He's regularly holding up things that we call genuine or real, and he's just poking holes in them. And, and he's showing us that it's not what we thought it was, right? Like, take religion, for example. He holds up religion, our understanding of religion to us. And he goes, well, you th- this is what you think religion is? Like, th- like this thing right here? No, no. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That's what he says. He gets to chapter two and he picks up faith and he goes, faith, it, you thought this was faith? Right, what good is it, brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can, can that faith save him? Over and over, he keeps doing this. All these words that we use, he challenges them over and over. He's, he's the ultimate Inigo Montoya. You, you remember that guy from The Princess Bride? You, you keep using that word. I, I do not think it means what you think it means. That's, that's our man James on like every page of his letter. You, what you call faith, that's not really faith. What you're calling religion isn't the pure and undefiled religion that, that God thinks about. It lacks the authenticating marks. And right here in James 3, he's again challenging our understanding of what we call wisdom of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you, he says, right? He's about to help us know what real wisdom is and what's just a fraud. What's, what's a fake? Now, how do you spot a fraud? Well, it, if you're going to try to determine what's real from what's fake, you have to know some things about what they're like. Today, we're going to see three of those things in the text. James gives us three, the nature of wisdom, the origin of wisdom, and the legacy of wisdom. The the nature of wisdom, what is it like, the origin, where did it come from, and the legacy, what kind of wake does it leave behind, right? Uh, That's how we're going to be able to spot the real thing in the midst of the faker. So let's get into it, Uh, the nature of wisdom, starting in verse 13, he says this, who is wise and understanding among you. James opens this, this section with a, with a challenge. He's, he's asking anybody who thinks they possess these qualities to, to step forward. He's like the, um, you know, the carnival guy, like with the big hammer and the, and the big dingy thing and, and, the, and the people come in, he's looking for strong men. He says, hey, you think you're tough, tough guy? Why don't you grab the hammer, smack the thing and see if you can ring the bell. That's what James is doing. He says, step right up and take a swing. Now, who is he inviting to step forward? Well, it's interesting. He says, the wise and understanding among you. These two words, wise and understanding people. That word wise is the Greek word sophos. It comes from the word sophia. You've you've heard that uh, word philosophy, the love of wisdom. It it, uh, just means what it says, wise. Uh, Understanding, uh, that idea is, uh, it comes from uh, the word epistemon, which uh, you've probably heard used like epistemology. That term means the study of knowledge, how we know what we know. That, that idea is, is something like um, intelligent, knowing, learned, 
Uh, think puffy velvet hats and, and robes and tassels, like think that. He's saying, hey, are any of you guys in the audience that kind of person? Why don't you step forward? Any master theologians, any, any bright, sharp people out there, well, step on forward. I have a test for you. I've got a test for you. Now, I, if you have the chance to kind of lay a test before this type of person to determine if they really were wise and understanding, I'm curious, what, what would you say? What would you say? What would your test be? Well, likely, your test, you might want to see something about how they would think about a, a deep or a complex issue, right? You might set a challenge like that before them. Like, uh, how much longer can we as a nation go without opening our economy in the light of a global pandemic? Your thoughts. Right? That might be what you do because it would engage their intellect in a way that would help you know, do, do they, are they rational? Can they think things through? Right? But that's not what James does here. That's not the test that he gives them. Here's James's test. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What does he say? Does he say, hey, I got a test for you. Why don't you solve this maze in less than a minute for me? Can you do that? Hey, how many zeros are in a Googleplex? Is that the kind of test that he gives these people? No, that's, that's not at all what he gives. He says, here's your test. You want, you want to be tested to see if you're the real deal, if you're truly wise, uh, truly understanding. Here's your test. Do good and be humble. Do good and be humble, and, and then we'll know something about the genuineness of your wisdom. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. He's saying the best display of wisdom is a life of good works. We know if you're wise when we see not how you think, but how you live, how you act. But, but it's even richer than that. It's more than that because he spells out the mood of these good works. What, how are we doing these good works? In, in, in what way are we doing them? What's the posture? Here's what he says. Let them show his works, what? In the meekness of wisdom. Now we're getting a fuller picture. Now, here's our first glimpse into the nature of what true wisdom is like. James says the nature of wisdom is that it's meek. Now, what does that mean? Well, that, that word meek there is translated in other parts of the New Testament as the word gentleness or even courtesy in a couple places. The NIV will translate it here in James as uh, humility that it's the humility of wisdom. How can you know if you're a truly wise person? According to James, the very first thing he tells us is you'll be a doer of good works done in humility. You'll be humble. You will be lowly. You won't be elbowing your way to the front of every line. You're marked by gentleness and humility as you do good in your community. You see that? That's what he's saying. Now, is that what you thought he was going to say? There's no way, right? There's no way. That's, that's not how any of us 
think about wisdom and understanding. Those aren't the terms in which we understand them. When we think about wisdom, understanding, we typically think about what? The intellect, right? The the mind, folks with seminary degrees, folks with doctorates, folks in leadership, people who sit around and talk about the space-time continuum and transubstantiation. These are the people who we think of typically as wise or understanding. But James isn't fooling around with that kind of stuff. He says he, he, he knows smart is not the same as wise. This is a a massive distinction that we have to see here. There are a lot of brilliant people in the world, brilliant, who are just utterly foolish, right? Mark Zuckerberg figured out how to make a hundred billion dollars by comparing people's faces to each other, right? But nobody's looking to Mark Zuckerberg as a bastion of meekness. Nobody's doing that. No, here, right here, is the shocking truth about the nature of wisdom. Wisdom is proven more by what's in your character than what's in your cranium. It's proven more by what makes up your character than what's going on inside your head. Okay, prove it, James. Prove to me that's what you're saying. He says, okay, let me show you the opposite of what a wise person looks like, so you can see what I mean. Verse 14, he says this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Do you see what he did there? He doesn't point to a failure of intellect, but a failure of character. He's saying, you may call yourself wise and understanding, but if you've got jealousy working in you, if you've got selfish ambition working in your heart, you may be smart, but you are a fool. That's what he's saying. He uses these these two phrases, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That word phrase, bitter jealousy, it carries the sense of envy, Uh, to others that we're looking around and we're saying, I want what he has and I don't have it. Selfish ambition, it's a very rare word in your Bible, erithea. There is an occurrence of it outside of scripture and it happens in the works of Aristotle where he's, he's writing to describe how greedy politicians would war with each other over partisan issues. Okay, so, so think for a moment, uh, just get in your head, whatever vision of like that, that petty, partisan, peace-resisting, hungry for power, me on top, envious of everybody else around me, uh, not wanting anyone to succeed but myself, that attitude right there. And he's saying that is anti-wisdom. That. So, So here's the gut punch for us. One of the surest signs you and I lack Wisdom, you know what it is? It's that we're self-focused. That you just care about your little kingdom of you. Right? That, that that's what you're working on all day and night. You can, uh, how you can get ahead. Uh, how you don't have what others have. How you want to be made much of. If you're living for your own little kingdom, you may be brilliant, James says, 
but you're actually a fool. You see that? And this is... (laughs) This is so hard for us to understand when our culture is saying like so the opposite of that. What James is calling vices, our culture is saying, no, these are, these are virtues. We like these things. These traits are good. I mean, just think of the TV shows uh, that are being created uh, right now. Empire, Billionaire. I mean, these are shows that are designed to whet our appetite for just the upward mobility of just doing it and just making it and getting to the top. I mean, that's what this is about. We don't call them vices. We have, we have nicer words for what James is talking about here, and it makes it hard to see. We have words for this like uh, hustle, drive. I mean, that guy's got a ton of drive ambition. That girl is so ambitious. She's going to make it to the top of her company in no time. Or or I'm I'm goal-oriented. I'm a goal-oriented person, right? I see what I want and I go get it. Or or I'm no pushover. Man, nobody, nobody's stepping on me. They don't take advantage of me. Trust me on that. Or, or, hey, I'm just getting what's mine, right? It's, it's, that's, that's mine to have, so I'm just going to go get it, right? That's, we admire that in our culture. You see that, right? Like we, what we say about those type of people, we say, man, that person's got some grit. That, person, that person's got some ambition. We don't call it bad. We have all these other names for it. But do you know what James calls it in the text? Buckle up, kids. He calls it demonic. <laughs> he calls it demonic. Look at verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. What on earth, James? He just took that volume knob and he just cranked that puppy to 11 real fast, right? Is he, is he overreacting? Right? Is, he, is he just kind of blowing his lid right now? Is, is James being like that friend of yours who hasn't been on a date in like three months and, and you ask him how they're feeling? They're like, well, I feel... Like I'm a hideous monster and no one will ever date me again, right? And you're like, settle down, bro. I think, it's, I think he's just been quarantined for three months, right? Is he just overreacting like that? I don't think he is. I think he's saying exactly what he means. One of the things that the Bible is always trying to do with us is to reorient the way that we think about everything how I understand the nature of this or that. The Bible gives us language and framework to to understand it rightly, to understand it the way God sees things. We want to be people who who see the the world the way God sees the world. We want to be people who, who talks about things the same way the Bible talks about things. And this is what the Bible just said. Do you want to know what Satanism really looks like? Evil Satanism. You want to know what it looks like? Selfishness. You being about your little kingdom. That's, that's what it's like. Hey, so I, 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 let me give this challenge to you. Next time, I want you to try this. Next time uh, you start envying someone else's Instagram page, right? And you start seeing their likes going up and that, that little bitter jealousy explodes in your heart. Next time that happens, you, you close your phone, and you open your mouth and you say, I'm being satanic, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying it's that thing 
That's satanic in us. Next time you refuse to let somebody's idea win in the workplace because you've just always got to have the the final say or you've always got to just make sure you get the last word, that next time that comes up in you, you need to stop and just say, I'm acting like the devil right now. Because that's what James is telling us we should think like about our selfish ambition. That's what it looks like to God. James is giving us the origin of this fraud wisdom. And he's saying it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. And it is the only wisdom this world has to offer us. It's the the only thing that's out there is this thing. But James is saying, More than that, he's saying there is another option on the table for you. By the grace of God, there's another option. There is a wisdom, he tells us, that is not of this world. And it's ours for the asking. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, There is a wisdom out there that that brings with it all of these beautiful qualities, these peacemaking qualities, but you cannot find it on earth. You can't locate it horizontally by looking around and trying to find a a new system of thought. You won't find it there. And you won't find it internally either. Like maybe if I look within me, I'll find that that good little nugget inside me that can produce these things. He's saying, no, you're not going to find it horizontally. You're not going to find it internally. It only comes vertically from above. The origin of true wisdom, James says, is from God himself. That's where it's from. Now, why is this important for us to see? I have been asking myself that question for a couple weeks now as I've been just chewing on this text. What is the connection between a wise life marked by humility that works toward peace with others, that doesn't demand its own way? What's the connection between that wise life and the fact that it comes down from above, from God? What's the connection there? Why, why do we need to see it working like that? Here's my best answer. <clears throat> Remember our, our kingdom imagery from earlier. James is saying that our selfishly ambitious way of living is like us. Remember, we're kind of ruling our own little empire, our own little kingdom where we're the king. Every person who's ever lived begins life as a king or queen of their own little empire of self. It's an earthly kingdom. It's unspiritual. It's demonic But that's what we have to work with. That's what we care about in this life, James says. Now imagine if all you have is your little kingdom of you, your little kingdom of self, then you know what you've got to constantly be doing as king? You've got to spend all your time and energy and resources defending your borders and warring against rival factions and establishing your throne. You can't help but be bitterly jealous and selfishly ambitious because your kingdom is at stake all the time for you, right? Wait, what did they say about me online? 
What did, what did she write? Wait, that guy got the job and I, I'm getting furloughed in this season? I, that should have been my job, right? Or, or that girl is going to pay for that. Nobody treats me that way. We always have to be defending our kingdom if that's all we have. I remember I had a buddy in college who you could hardly talk to some days because no matter what you said, he'd always have to find some way to one-up you in that conversation. So we'd be hanging at my house, playing guitars, having a good time, and he'd make sure that he snuck in for like the 11th time that there was one time in high school that he played with B.B. King on stage. It's like, dude, that's awesome, but I only need to hear it once to be impressed. But he just kept reiterating it. He was combative and self-promotional. It was exhausting. Why? Why was it like that? Because all he had was his kingdom, and he had to defend it. He had to establish it. Are are you tracking with me? But now watch this. James says, well, a life marked by humility and, and peacemaking, that life doesn't come from here. It comes from above. It's a gift from God to us. It's a gift. Do you remember James 1? Uh, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives, gives generously to all without reproach and it'll be given him. So here's where it came together for me. You can't receive gifts from a rival king until you make peace with them. Right? You, you can't receive gifts from from a rival king while you're at war with him. It doesn't work like that. When, when the U.S. and Germany were at war with each other, Hitler wasn't getting gift baskets from FDR in the mail. Like, hey, Eva, come here to poodle. Like, that wasn't happening then, right? That's not how this thing works. Gifts are given to friends, not enemies. That's how it always works. And wisdom, he says, is a gift from God the king. For you and I to get the gift of wisdom from that king, peace has to be established for somebody's kingdom is going to have to surrender. And I'll give you a hint. It's not going to be his. For us to get that gift of wisdom that would make us that type of person that is meek and lowly and peacemaking, for us to get that gift, we have to stop warring against God's kingdom. We have to surrender. Now, typically, when a, when a losing kingdom surrenders, it doesn't go well for those guys. I don't know if you know how this thing works, but, but when you surrender, you, there's, now you're, you're kind of in even more of a problem. This is when the judgment comes, right? The, the losing army uh, historically would have been paraded through the city with chains on them, being mocked at by the victors, being spat upon, all of that. The rival king oftentimes would just be killed, be done away with. These, these would be the terms of peace if you had to surrender to a rival kingdom. But you know what's so beautiful about Christianity is it's not like that in God's kingdom. That's not how he works. It's a different kind of kingdom. Instead of bringing the judgment for our war crimes on our heads, the king says, I'll pay for those war crimes myself. That's what I want to do for you. Jesus was beaten 
instead of us. He was dragged through the street instead of us, mocked instead of us, spat upon instead of us, crucified instead of us. Colossians 1.20 talks about it this way. It says that Jesus made peace between us and God. How? By the blood of his cross. The king took the judgment for our war crimes. Do you see that? And everyone who comes to him now, like right now, like even while you're watching this, and surrenders their kingdom, his death counts for you. It counts for you. He brings you into his kingdom forever. He makes peace with you. So I don't know if you're hearing this and you're you're the person who's just always easily offended, right? Or you just, you've got a chip on your shoulder. You always have to have the last word or you can't let anything go. But but I just want to say this. Your issue is likely not primarily horizontal. Your issue is a vertical problem. You have a vertical issue. And if you don't settle the vertical, you're never going to settle the horizontal. It's always going to be a mess here if this isn't made right. That's why he says in verse 16, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That's what you can expect if you haven't made peace with God first. But do you know what happens when God the King makes peace with you? Do you know what happens then? You begin making peace with others. That's what happens. And this is the legacy of wisdom. Look again with me at verse 17. It says this, but the wisdom from above is first pure, that is innocent, then peaceable, right? I'm, I'm not gonna go to war with you. <laughs> Gentle, open to reason. That phrase right there literally means easily persuaded. Not that we like lack conviction or or that we're gullible or we don't care about stuff, but that on non-essential things, like, yeah, let's do it your way. I'm I'm okay with that. Like, I, I can survive that. I don't need the last word. It's full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. You know what all these say? Here's what they say. They say, I don't, I don't have to defend my honor anymore. Like I, I don't have to guard my throne. I, I gave all that up. I, I don't have to win this war with you because I'm part of a different kingdom now. Like I've, I've given that thing up. My eyes are off myself so I can actually focus on your good instead of always laboring for my good, just filled with selfish ambition. I can put that aside because I've made peace with him. I can make peace with you. God made peace with me so that we can be okay, that I can make peace horizontally. That's wisdom. And James ends this whole thing by adding this one more verse on. He says in verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. One of the surest signs that you've settled your vertical issues with God. One of the surest ways that that you can know that you're walking in the wisdom from above, it's this. The legacy you leave behind you is a harvest of righteousness. Uh, So when I met Kelly in in college, 
uh, man, I was super into her, right? She was beautiful and bright. She just had everything I'd want. And the girls, I mean, just, just check every box. It was amazing. But what really drew me to her and kept me with her was just noticing her reputation. As I got to know her friends and as she got to know my friends and I got to interact with all of them afterwards, I just, I began to realize, man, everybody who's interacted with you has, has been improved by your presence. Everywhere you go, it's like there's a, there's a harvest of good things that you leave behind you. She, she left a wake of blessing behind her. That's how it is with every person who's walking in wisdom from above. We leave a legacy of righteousness behind us. And can I tell you, that's exactly what, what James means when he says the harvest of righteousness is sown by those who make peace. As you seek to make peace with others, as you, as you don't clamor to be at the, the front of the line all the time, righteousness tends to follow you wherever you go. There's blessing that you leave behind you, a wake and a legacy of blessing and good things. And the invitation is seek that kind of peace that produces that kind of legacy. Does that make sense? So I'll end by, by going back to the beginning of this letter. Uh, to try to tie a bow on this. Uh, because remember, um, James kind of opens his letter with, uh, with a little uh, couple verses about wisdom in James 1.5. And I want to s- go back here uh, to see if it reads any difference, different to us now that we know what it means, what he's talking about. He says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And my guess is, if you're like me, you, you read that the first time and, and you thought James was saying mostly, hey, if you're not a great thinker, click here, right? That's how I took it when I first read it. But now we see, as, as we've worked our way through James chapter three, he's actually talking less about our intellect and more about our character. Hey, do you lack humility? He's saying, hey, are, are you always fighting to protect your little kingdom? God wants to make you a person who surrenders to his kingdom, who, who can live for others. That's true wisdom. That's true wisdom. And let's end just by asking God for that now in prayer. Will you pray with me? God, you, you make a bold claim in James 1 that everybody who asks you for wisdom if we ask in faith with no doubting, you will deliver on that request. God, it sounds to me like you are eager to make us into people who are meek and lowly, just like your son was meek and lowly, that that you are eager to transform us into people who don't always have to get our way, who aren't always eager to get to the front of the line. God, so much so that you say, ask me and I'll give that to you. I'll give that kind of heart to you. So God, this is us just saying, will you give us that kind of heart right now? I, I, I lack this in so many ways. And maybe you're praying with me at home right now and you're feeling the same way. Man, I just lack so many of those qualities. God, will you be kind to us right now as we plead with you and just say, will you, will you make us into more wise people? Not wise like this world thinks of wise but wise like you understand wise, God.
wise, wise in the lowly, meek sense. Wise in the peacemaking sense. God, will you change us into that kind of person who, who really has settled things vertically so that we can love and care for others horizontally. God, we do those things in our heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.